Here we are. It's Jesus feeding the 4,000. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them. He gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also, and he told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, and 4,000 were present. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the region of Dalmuntha. Wow. Wow. I have to be honest, when I first read this, I thought, get in. I've just spoken on the feeding of the 5,000. I don't need to do any work. I can just pull those notes out again and decide to focus on essentially what Mark's trying to look at as Jesus being a compassionate savior, that he is a better Moses than the Moses that we see in the Old Testament because he wants to feed us with his bread of life and um, food that doesn't fade, actually an everlasting food on him. And then I thought, hold on, these guys who have been sitting through this, what what was it, maybe five weeks ago, six weeks ago, are going to be pretty bored. And then I started asking the question, but hold on, why? Why have we got a story that is almost identical two chapters on? It was in chapter six, and now we here are at chapter eight, and it's almost identical to the feeding of the 5,000. And so if I was honest, I was sort of like, do you know what, I'm just going to pass over this because we've read it, we've been there, we've done it. And then I had to ask these questions of why is Mark put this in the gospel? And do you know there are commentators out there who would suggest that this is actually a mistake? That Mark has forgotten that he's put the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and this again is just a repeat of the story that's happened and he's got the numbers wrong. And there are some commentators out there who say, this story's in there really as repetition. We understand by repetition that something's really important. So grasping this point that Jesus is a provider, that he will provide for all, is so key. And so that's why Mark has put this two chapters later. But actually... As I looked at it, as I dwelt on it, as I studied commentators on why is this? Because I have to be honest, I got to this point just reading it and thinking, and I've done it before, I remember just going through the Gospels, and every time I hit this, I hit the same point of, why on earth is that story in there again? I don't know whether you have asked the same question, but it's okay to not understand. Actually, this is where we dig down into Scripture and try and figure out what is the writer trying to get over to us. That's what we're going to look at today, and just take you on a little journey as to what is Mark really saying as he repeats this story. And you know, when it comes to commentators, a lot of them actually don't understand either. Their reasons behind it seem confused. 
And so when we hit parts of the Bible that we get confused about or we don't understand, it's okay. But we don't stop and just move on. Like my temptation was to go, we've been here, let's just move on past it. There's something here that God wants to teach us. And so we're just going to find that out. And when we look at confusion, we find that actually it's not us that gets, just us that gets confused. It's not commentators of today. The disciples were a very confused bunch. And even in these stories, the key thing that Jesus pulls out as he says, he talks to his guys is we find out after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus then rescues them. If you remember on the boat of, uh, on the lake of Galilee and They've just come out of this feeding of the 5,000. He says to them, they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. That was what what Jesus said after the feeding of the 5,000 about his disciples. They hadn't understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And there's a sense that they haven't understood who he is. But actually, they just haven't understood what Jesus is trying to tell them about this new kingdom as well. And there's something that Mark knows now that he's right, as he's writing this, that the disciples at this point in real time didn't understand. And Mark now obviously does. John Mark. But what's fascinating is when we're talking about misunderstanding, we have this event, this same identical event, two chapters later, Almost identical situation happening. And again, Jesus says to them after the event, he says this, it's verse 17 in chapter 8. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but uh, ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? I don't know if you're sitting here now and thinking, yep, I've got it, totally understand it. But I think I would have been like those disciples. I would have still had no idea what he was talking about. Do you know, we played a game with the youth recently. We played with a life group. And I want to just spend two minutes playing this game. Because it sort of helps us to understand the points. So the youth, some of them here who have played it, might know how to play this game. And it's called the Bang Bang Game. Okay? So you're all involved. And I have a gun in my hand. And I'm going to shoot it. And you've got to try and figure out who's been shot. Okay? So we're just going to play a few rounds. In fact, Baron Ruth have played this. I don't know if I remember how it works. We played it in live group. Are you ready? Okay? Bang, bang, bang. Who's dead? It was Steve. You're right. Okay? Bang, bang, bang. Who's dead? Ronnie's pointing at someone here. No, it's not Charlotte. It was me. There's a code here. Okay? I'm going to do this again. Bang, bang, bang. Who's dead? Paul, who's dead? The wall. 
It's not actually. It was, it, it was, it was me again. Now it's really quite hard to play in this large, large group. But you, you gotta start, you, your head starts ticking thinking, what's the correlation here? What's the codes? And if I'm honest, I could draw this out and you'd all be just totally frustrated. But what you find, I'll tell you what happens. You sit around this table with maybe eight of you, ten of you tops, and you see the faces that just suddenly start picking up on it. But the challenge is, is that often we focus on the wrong things. We see this gun shooting things, and we think this is the correlation, this is the code. And actually, it's nothing to do with the gun. The whole point of this game is the first person to talk after the third bang is dead. And so you get people guessing. And so it changes every time as somebody guesses who's been shot. And it's the very person who spoke first afterwards. But in this game, you realize nobody has a clue. And you see people who suddenly go, I've got it. And they're going, yeah, this person's died. And this person, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And the other people going, I'm still, still no idea. And you know, as I said, I think the problem is sometimes things are staring us right in the face. But we're focusing on the wrong things. We're lacking understanding as to what's really being said. Okay? I hope that game doesn't confuse it. That game's supposed to help us to understand that some things are complex. We focus on the wrong things. And you know, when we look at Mark as a writer, he gets quite a bad rep amongst a lot of scholars. A lot of people think Mark was a very simple writer. Um, and didn't really think much about the structure of his gospel. In fact, a lot of people think he copied off Matthew a lot of his stuff. In fact, now people say his, his was actually possibly the first gospel. Um, but I want to suggest that actually Mark is very intent. He's very structured in what he's writing and why he's writing and where he's writing it. He isn't lazy in just putting down another story that he thinks I'll fill the gospel with this story again. And actually, he's very intentional. This story here of the feeding of the 4,000 is very, very intentional. But we only realize it when we start to understand what some of those clues are to understanding what is Mark trying to say to us. And I think we actually get a lot of that answer sandwiched in between these two chapters. And there's a story, Amanda went through chapter 7. There's a story in chapter 7 about the Syrophoenician woman. And I want us to just quickly look at that to try and understand exactly why Mark is structured it the way he has. Okay? So, this is Mark 7, chapter 24. It says, Jesus honors the Syrophoenician woman's faith. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and he did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive out the demon out of her daughter. Jesus says this, First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. 
Now, <laughs> this is one of those passages that you think, I don't want to study this one. And a lot of commentators really struggle to pin down what's actually being said here. Because it's difficult, because we find Jesus saying something really quite difficult to this woman. Um, but I want to just look at that, because I think it'll help us to understand what the feeding of the 4,000 is all about. Okay, What we've got here is a woman who has gone to seek Jesus out. Jesus is trying to get some time out. Remember, he's had a really busy time. He has uh, just fed the 5,000. He's been on the lake, stilled the storm. He has released people from demons. He's even this guy who was full of all these demons. He's become famous. His fame is at its high point right now, and he's he needs some time. So he's gone to this house to find space, and this woman has found out that Jesus is there. And so she's gone looking for him. And she's entered the house and she's asked him to release her daughter from an evil spirit. And Jesus says this to her. First, let the children eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What on earth is Jesus talking about here? Who are the children in this passage? Well, one of the things about Jews and Gentiles at that point, it's understand, it's understanding the culture, what was going on. If a, um, person was not a pure Jewish bloodline, Jews would refer to Gentiles, non-Jews, as dogs. And you know, this wasn't your cute little dog that we have at home that we treat like our children, that we, lots of people leave their entire money to and wealth to. This, was a stray dog. Imagine a stray dog who was rummaging through bins, who is dirty, unclean, and nobody wants to go anywhere near. This was when the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. This is the picture that we have of the uncleanness. The I want to separate myself totally from this set of people. This is the dogs. And so when Jesus is talking about that tossing this bread to the dogs, he's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about those people. And the children, who are the children? The children are the children of God. It's the nation of Israel. It's the Jews. Do you know, the, the reality is God chose this Jewish nation a long time ago. Not because of anything they had done. He chose them. To be his people. And these are the children of God that Jesus is talking about. So he's saying, I've come firstly to feed the children, to feed the nation of Israel. I've come to bring them life. And I need to feed them before I feed the dogs. And you know, this is actually a constant theme through scripture. This idea that the Jews come first and then the Gentiles. It's not something that Jesus is just saying here that is very unusual that we think, whoa, whoa, hold on. This was a biblical principle. In fact, we see it throughout the New Testament. We see Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, going through the New Testament. He says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And when we see Paul out on mission in the New Testament, every place that he goes to, the first place he goes to is the synagogue. So this idea 
that it's Jew then Gentile is a biblical principle that's followed through as we read the Bible. Every place he went to, he went to the synagogue first. And then he went to the marketplace where the Gentiles were. And he engaged with them about who God is. We even see it in cities in the New Testament like Philippi where there was no synagogue. This was a Roman colony. And so he arrives in Philippi and he heads to find, he knows there are going to be some Jews there. And he heads down to the water sides to find a group he knows there's going to be some Jews praying to God. And he finds Lydia. It's where we find Lydia and encounter her. And he engages first with this group of Jews. And then he goes off to the marketplace. And that's how he builds the church. And it seems harsh, doesn't it? When you read this passage, it seems harsh that Jesus is speaking to this woman in this way. Because we expect Jesus just to be very forthcoming. We've seen him in lots of examples of just blessing people, healing them. And yet he says to this woman, this quite what we what appears to be a harsh word. But she replies like this, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Do you know, this is honestly an amazing response from this woman. Now, bearing in mind that women's status and class was very different in those days. But you know, my first thought would have been offense. I would have been offended by Jesus probably. And I would have started arguing with him probably on this comment. But she doesn't. Okay? She acknowledges firstly his lordship in her life. Lord. And there's a humility here. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And she's just absolutely desperate to receive something from Jesus. She doesn't get offended. She acknowledges who he is. And she just wants a piece of him. There's a desperation here. And you know, Jesus loves this. Absolutely loves her response. And he says, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. In the other Gospels, Jesus talks about this faith of this lady. Her response in that entire encounter changed everything for her. Her daughter was healed. She was released from this demon. And I believe that the main point that Mark wants to reveal in these stories that we're looking at on the feeding of the five and the four thousand is essentially this point. The gospel is no longer just for the children of God, the Jews, the Jewish race. It is now for the Gentiles as well. It's for everyone who believes. But Mark also wants us to understand and not lose sight of the fact that God has a real heart for his people that he chose, the Jewish race. And there is an order in which he will bring it. It doesn't change the fact that Jews today are not going to get some special in through some back door. It's not, well, you don't really believe in Jesus, but we'll let you in. There is one way to the Father. But it's this idea that the gospel, this new kingdom, is not just for the chosen generation, this Jewish nation. It is for everyone, for all nations. So I want to ask the questions then, as we look at the 5,000 and 4,000, how do these stories point us clearly towards this element that the gospel is for all nations? 
And secondly, why did the disciples continue to struggle to understand what was going on when they're hit with this very similar situation? So some observations on the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Just as I was going through thinking, what are some of the things that are exactly the same? And they are almost identical. So they're both in front of large crowds. Okay, Both appear to be in a desert area, a very rural place. Both times we see Jesus stepping out in absolute compassion. And this word of compassion on his people is used. Okay, um, Both times we see him wanting to provide and providing for his people. Both times we see Jesus expecting the disciples to do something about it. And he delegates the responsibility of giving out to his disciples. Both times in these accounts, the disciples have absolutely no clue about how they're going to feed these vast crowds. Both times he commands the people to sit down before he feeds them. Both times he uses both bread and fish. He blesses it. Okay. And it's multiplied. There's a miraculous miracle happen. And both times we see that there are leftovers and that the people are fully satisfied with their food. Okay? They are the similarities that I can see between these two stories. So what are the differences? And it's helpful to understand the differences because that will help direct us and point us towards what Mark is trying to say. So firstly, the first big difference is locations. The locations are different. And actually, it's highly significant. Okay? In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is on Jewish territory. And we see this in the book of Mark, don't we? We see Jesus traveling from Jewish territory into Gentile territory. And it's really important that we understand this significance. And in the feeding of the 4,000, he's in the Decapolis. He's in Gentile territory. The audience sitting down is a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience. Other differences in the first account, the Jewish audience, they're there for a day and they go back to the homes in the Gentile, they're there for three days um, because it says they've traveled a long way to get there. In the feed of the 5,000, we see there's five loaves and two fish um, and there's seven loaves and a couple of fish, two fish in Decapolis. Um, and then the final big difference is there was 12 baskets of bread left over in the feeding of the 5,000 amongst the Jewish crowds. And there were seven large baskets left over in the feeding of the 4,000. And uh, I want to suggest really there's two points here that I want to look at as to why Mark is directing us again in understanding that the gospel is for the Gentiles. It's for all, it's for everyone. And simply, as we look at location, again, this order that we talked about, Jew first and Gentile, Mark's very deliberate. The feeding of the 5,000 has come first because he has fed the Jews first. The feeding of the 4,000 is next because it's Jew, then Gentile. And so the location and the order is really important to understanding why Mark has put them where he has in this gospel. And that's highly significant. And this second point is really important as well. We've got baskets. I think this is the next big thing that points us towards Jesus' heart for us to understand that the gospel is now no longer just for the Jewish nation. 
in the feeding of the 5,000, we have 12 baskets that are left over. And I don't know if you've read the book, um, what's it called? Code Breakers or something of the Bible. Now, I'm not into this Code Breakers thing. I think the Bible should be fairly clear, okay? There isn't some hidden code that's in there. It should be very clear in, in what we understand. And that doesn't mean we always understand because culturally we're very far removed. But it does mean there, there isn't every 50 letters, there's a, another, another letter that we take up and there's another meaning inside the Bible. But what we're talking about here is there's two different words used for baskets in the accounts here, in Mark's accounts. So the first one is kafinus, which is the 12 baskets, Okay. And this is actually um, just a normal size basket. And in the second account, we have spurus. They're the Greek terms. And the spurus basket is a large basket, stronger and larger than the 12 that were used. Okay? And there's something here that I think Jesus deliberately wanted to teach the disciples regarding this point. And I think... It doesn't take a genius to try and figure out what the number 12, when we're talking about the Jewish nation, is significant about. We understand that there are 12 tribes, okay? This was the people group. And so when there's 12 baskets that are full at the end, Jesus is essentially saying, this is the Jewish nation. I haven't come like Moses just to give you manna that is gone. I will feed you until you are fully satisfied. And when I feed you, it will never end. And it is for the whole of the Jewish nation, the whole 12 tribes, that whole people group, I will feed. And so when we have 12 baskets left over, that's the significance of this number 12. But you know, Mark doesn't spell out the significance of this number 7 for us in this account. But I want to suggest to you, it has massive significant meaning concerning foreigners and Gentiles. And if we go back, the Jewish immediate thought when we're looking at the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 was this. This is mimicking the miracle back in the desert with Moses. Okay, That's why they're in desert land. I went through this all Last time with the feeding of the 5,000. That's why they're in a place where they're like, hold on, where do we get any bread from here? They're in the middle of nowhere, just like the nation of Israel was back in the desert. They were in the middle of nowhere. They required a miracle of God to provide for them. And so automatically their minds would have gone back to this point. And back at that point, they were going through this desert land to get to the promised land. Okay. And as God sent them to investigate the promised land, he says this in Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and dries out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. Is the penny starting to drop? These seven baskets are supposed to represent these seven Gentile nations. 
that are larger and stronger than the Jewish nation. And what God is saying is, he now wants to embrace. It's not about destroying. He wants to embrace and welcome into God's kingdom through the Messiah. He wants to provide for these Gentile nations. They now are cared for and loved for. And they get a share in this bread of life. This Gentile nations, they get to eat from the crumbs from under the table. They've traveled a long distance and they get to share and partake. So it's nothing about the amount of bread that is left. Actually, what we find out is that the baskets are full. It's symbolic of the Gentile nations. Okay? To find, I want to just ask this last question. Why did the disciples not get what Jesus was trying to teach them? Why was their response, but where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? You know, they've just witnessed an identical miracle, but still seem absolutely thoroughly unprepared for what lies ahead. And I think, firstly, it comes down to faith. And we have to be careful because I know there's this temptation to look at the disciples and go, what a bunch of numpties, you know? Surely they've just seen this. Surely they know Jesus is going to provide. But actually, if we look at our own lives, we see that even in this church alone, God has done amazing miracles amongst us. Hasn't he? He's healed many. Cancers, all sorts of things going on. And yet, whenever we hit that point where we appear to be faced with the impossible, I don't know if it's just me, we still come to that question of, can God do this? Can he come through? Is he going to come through on this? And I think the disciples, probably there was some of that in this response of, yeah, we've just seen it, but, but I don't know how God's going to do it this time. Can he, can he really do it? That's the idea of the impossible. And it seems to shock us every time, and it shouldn't, but it does. Okay? But actually, the other thing that I think is going on here is something so deep-rooted that I've already touched on. And it's their culture. Their culture has been one that has believed something about themselves that they are special. It believes that the God of Israel is their God and their God alone. In fact, it's been their very identity. Okay? As they've gone to war, they have been the people of God. God has fought for them. He has defeated their enemies. And so as they're sitting here in the feet of the 4,000 to think that God would ever be somebody else's God, that he would ever provide for them, defend them, is a massively difficult concept to understand. He's their God. And actually, this very culture, which is brilliant, they understand their identity, is putting up barriers. It's caused a barrier to stop the gospel, to stop the power of God moving at work amongst other people groups. And you know, we see this again throughout the whole of the New Testament, that the very disciples, Peter, struggled with this point. Even after the resurrection, they still had not fully understood this point. They're still wrestling with it all the time. They believed that people who were Gentiles had to become Jews. They had to get circumcised if they really wanted to receive from the Messiah. They still believed that they were unclean. 
So you get in Acts 10, you get this um, strong encounter that Peter has with God as he lowers this um, blanket with unclean animals on it. And Peter and God sends Cornelius to Peter. And Peter goes to Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile. And the Spirit of God comes on them. So you go all the way up to Acts 10, where the disciples still think the Gentile nation is unclean. Needs to become like them to even get a little crumb from under the table. And even after this encounter that Peter has in Acts 10, you've got the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And the disciples are still arguing over whether or not Gentiles deserve whether they are able to receive Jesus. And they're discussing the merits of it. And in fact, we see in the letters, many of the letters coming through, as Paul writes to the churches, and we realize that actually there's a deep-rooted cultural barrier that stops them from believing that God's power, his gospel, is for the Gentiles. It's a recurring issue. That God has to keep speaking about to them. And I'm coming back to this passage on Paul, Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And I want to end by asking this question. Who might we, just like the disciples, Exclude from the gospel. Where has our culture put up walls or barriers to the gospel? Who do we think that Jesus won't feed, doesn't want to feed, can't feed? It's impossible. Do you know, back in our old church, I remember turning up one morning and we had this um, guy turned up and he called himself Lily. He had long hair, and he was dressed in women's clothing. And he was an alcoholic. And I remember the church's response. There were some people who thought Lily should not be with us, should not be in the congregation. And actually, there's a challenge here for us, isn't there? How open are we that everybody, everyone, can come and receive from Jesus. They can come and receive his bread. There was lots going on in Lily's life. So many complex issues. He had himself signed down to the sex registry to uh, for a sex change. And he was pretty confused. And you know what? We used to go every morning, because he used to live very local to us, and we had Jesse at the time. And Jesse was like one and a half. She didn't understand. She just saw this woman who had stubble. And we went to pick Lily up most mornings and brought Lily to church. And we'd, we'd drive Lily home and Lily would talk about how it was an amazing service, how he felt the presence of God. And actually, not through our own church. He, he ended up not staying in our church. Uh, but he did actually encounter God and he became a Christian and, uh, he changed his name back to Stephen as people loved him. 
as people showed him the love of God and cherished him and brought a real warmth and didn't put up those barriers to saying, God cannot touch you. I guess you just got to ask those questions. Who is it in our lives that we think the gospel can't touch? Is it people from the wrong family, the wrong backgrounds, the wrong education, the wrong language, the wrong race, the wrong culture? Is it the wrong sexual preference? Is it wrong faith, wrong moral track records, the wrong attitudes, the wrong worldview? Or maybe... It's those who are closest in our lives that we just don't have faith that God can reach, that God can possibly break through to. Maybe it's our closest family. Maybe it's our spouse or our closest friends or our work colleagues. Or maybe it's even ourselves. The word Paul uses in Romans 1 is everyone who believes. Everyone. And you know, this should bring us such joy. That card has come not just for the Jewish race, but for everyone. It should make us immensely thankful that we, not out of anything that we have done or deserve, in fact, have been welcomed by the Messiah who is so able and willing to feed us and to bring us eternal life. Because you know what? He's performed the greatest ever Miracle. That miracle was amazing, the feeding of the 4,000. But he has performed the greatest ever miracle in his death and resurrection, hasn't he? On the cross. And he has promised not to just feed some large groups of people, but to bring his bread of life to a multitude of people that no one can count from every tribe and tongue and nation on planet Earth. John 6 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God wants to do a work on us, church. If we're going to be a church that is open to all, that loves all, then actually I want to suggest we've all got things in our hearts. That put barriers up to people coming to him. And he wants to take them down and he wants to bring faith. He wants to bring faith that in the impossible he can do. In those areas of our lives where we think it's impossible, he can do.